So let's begin. Friends, welcome to Spirit Seekers. Today is Friday, March 12th. My name is Lucy Samara. I serve First Congregational Church of Burlington, United Church of Christ as the communications coordinator and host of Spirit Seekers. And today I am so pleased to welcome Tony Hall uh, to be our special guest. I have had the pleasure of knowing Tony for really a long time. I'm realizing, I mean, well more than 30 years that I've known Tony and, um, and I just, I have such a positive feelings about who he is as a person and I'm really looking forward to exploring his story, his faith journey and life story with you today. And that is the purpose of, of Spirit Seekers is to build community and understanding and help us to all grow as people and in faith as we share each other's highlights of each other's uh, life stories and faith journeys. Now, um, one of the ways that I think of Tony has to do with music. And um, if you think about Tony Hall and music, you're thinking about jazz, as he is one of the founding members of the Onion River Jazz Band. And um, I have a, a, just a, some comments from a rabbi, Rabbi Yoshi Zweibeck, um, and he was talking about jazz and looking at jazz and prayer. So he, he said the word jazz originally meant energy, spirit, and vigor. And I think those are all great words to describe Tony. So Tony could be Tony Jazz Hall. <laughs> energy, positive energy, spirit, vigor. And here's what Rabbi Zweibach has to say. Praying is like playing jazz. The more you pray, the richer your prayer becomes. You can pray alone, but the exciting things happen with fellow prayers. It helps to know and trust others too, although you can learn a lot when you pray with new people. Sometimes we pray in harmony. Other times we each pray at our own rhythm, at our own volume. So... When I think of prayer, I don't have to go far to think of Tony because um, I didn't really grow up in the church and I was in my early thirties, uh, part of the, the first church community for the first time. And um, I'm trying to think of when it was, it might've even be, been the day we joined the church, but it, one day after church in the Midway area, Tony said hello to me and he said, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And it's the first time anyone had ever said anything like that to me in my life. And all I could think was, why? Well, wait a minute. What are you praying for about me? <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was kind of wanting to manage that prayer, Tony. I don't know. <laughs> it stuck with me, that whole, that whole idea of intercessory prayer that you were praying for me. And it didn't matter what it was. It just was a, a way of saying there's a connection. Yeah. Um, and... So when Tony and I were getting ready for today, I shared that story with him as just an example of the kind of thing you can say to somebody and you have no idea. I'm, I'm not sure, did you remember saying that to me, Tony? I did not. <laughs> uh, 30 years uh, is a long time, so. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so Tony, help us get to know you. You grew up in, in your early years were in Bennington, Vermont. Yep. This is so we're talking to an actual Vermonter. <laughs> right. I'm from, and, the, uh, I'm and, uh, from the South. 
I'm from Bennington. So. Bennington, that's right, the South in Bennington. So tell us a little bit about your childhood, how, how you originally saw yourself as a person of faith. Yeah, well, to talk about my faith, I really have to tell you about my early childhood and my parents and my growing up in Bennington and then in old Bennington, Vermont. Uh, by telling you that my dad was a Vermonter, um, a uh, graduate of the University of Vermont and then the University of Vermont Med School. And he was a very gifted physician and he, he was a heart specialist. And in 1932, uh, he met my mother and in 1934, they were married and she was from Yonkers, New York. She was a New York socialite and uh, actress and uh, pianist and uh, vocalist. And so that marriage was one of completely different backgrounds. Uh, if you can imagine rural Vermont meeting Edwardian England, you had it because literally my mother had no experience other than um, Irish servants in the home and uh, you know dinner parties and uh, welcoming the soldiers uh, uh, from the battlefield uh, in World War I to their home, that kind of thing kind of background. So oil and water does not mix and they were individually and are lovely people. I love them. They loved me, but their troubled relationship really had a, a, an effect on my early uh, childhood growing up because all my needs obviously were not met by my folks. And as Erickson says, your early memories of nurturing love are really through your parents neither of whom were really able to uh, speak whatever language I needed to hear in order to feel that love. So to me, the chaos and the uncertainty of an unhappy marriage really compromised my trust. And to add insult to injury, I thought that their dysfunctional relationship was my fault, mm -hmm. which is not unusual, I understand now, but then I didn't understand that. So I blamed myself and I felt a lot of shame about that. Somehow I had this innate sense of God being with me, even though I was living through uh, this dysfunctional relationship period. So I was able to get through it, but my faith journey was very difficult at times because I saw God much as I saw my parents uh, very strict, uh, unhappy, judgmental. And so when you add lack of trust and a negative image of God, you have a real challenge of faith on your hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And seventh grade at Sacred Heart School in, in, old, in Bennington didn't uh, reinforce anything but a negative image. That unfamiliar mass kind of unsettled me. Here mm -hmm. I was a Protestant on the outside looking in and I felt excluded from God's love and that troubled me. And then later on, when I went to Harvard Divinity School on a, a Rockefeller Foundation scholarship, my beliefs were really challenged because here I had conflicting biblical narratives. You know, on the one hand, I was thrown off balance by reading the Bible text literally, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, reading it literarily, and never the twain shall meet, or else trying very difficult uh, challenges like how do you mix and match these uh, various narratives. 
So my belief system was challenged and I liken it to having your uh, beliefs chopped up on and dissected on a surgical table. Now happily, this had, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, because you've got the, the prayer life from your church life and then you have the intellectual examination of faith and different branches of it being presented to you. Precisely, yeah. very well said. That's exactly it in a nutshell. Yep. Now, Did all you, were you active in it? You were active in a church in Bennington. I was. Uh, as we grew up, again, my folks were not real churchgoers, but somehow the minister at the old first church there, which I attended regularly, um, really uh, was a mentor to me. And we performed Shakespeare together. And uh, he, he just kind of put his arms around me and helped. He saw something in me, I guess, which I didn't see in myself. So that was a good positive influence uh, that Thomas Street had on me. Lovely man from England um, and a very erudite uh, preacher. But I can remember early days of, uh, you know, reading scripture from, we had two pulpits, one high and one, if you know the old first church, you know it's a low pulpit and a high pulpit with two uh, stairs, one on either side. And I can remember as a kid in, uh, you know, Christmas Eve and stuff being asked to go up there and do readings and I remember preaching sermon there uh, in my teenage years when I asked the church to consider seriously joining the UCC. And I was thoroughly grilled by the trustees because they were they did not feel comfortable uh, going down that road. And I said, you know, it's, it's your choice, but not going down that road means that you will become um, a local museum, which is basically what they what they were for quite a while. So anyway, that's how I got involved in the church, you know, there. But since then, my faith has really um, evolved over the years with uh, Bible study. When, for example, I joined First Church in 1965, uh, Alice Watson, who was the pastoral uh, actually was the parish ministry and then was asked to be the first assistant to George Lawrence, uh, asked me to become uh, the adult Bible class leader. And so I accepted that charge. And it was a situation of where, boy, those folks were, they taught me more than I ever taught them. It was a wonderful experience in our discussions. I, I still remember how, um, inquisitive and curious and learned these folks were. And to think that I fell in the middle of these people was just, it was wonderful. It was as if they wrapped their arms around me and, and uh, carried me off. And so through the years, Bible class, uh, theological study on my own, discussions with, with friends like Lucy and Mike and all of you, and uh, certainly privately with Cindy has shown me God's unconditional love of me so that now I, I can trust that there is a God who runs toward me with outstretched arms and I do rely on the Holy Spirit to heal and, and the Holy Spirit really has healed my negative image of God. Uh, and that's the good news that I try to pass on to people in my pastoral care work uh, is that, you know, you are beloved. And that if you have a negative image of God, you can deal with that. God is anxious to do that with you. Incidentally, for you folks that like to read uh, books of all kinds, there's a great book out there called Good Goats. And it's Ooh. based 
specifically a story by Lynn and, well, Sheila and Dennis Lynn, L-I-N-N. And it's just a very short book, but it's theologically sound. And uh, uh, the Lynn's came from the perspective of a negative image of God, as did I, and were able to see that God is not that way. You know, God is not punitive. God is merciful. And you can point to many different, you know, sources that will show that that's true. I have that book in my house, Tony. I was just looking behind me to see if it was if it was right there. I, I think that's I, I I'm so interested that you know of them. That you know, yeah. Yeah. one of the things that I'm hearing in what you're saying is that kind of a repeated theme in what you were saying was that you people saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. Um, I'm guessing that you were are as you're a very articulate person. You're, uh, you're, we know about your faithfulness. Your intellect is, is clear, um, comes right through. And I, I'm guessing that people saw that. I mean, the, the UCC was formed in 1957, right? So you're, you're 17, 18 years old when you're trying to convince, convince the Bennington congregation to join the UCC. And you're wondering what they saw in you. Um, that your your mom's brought music and theater, you know, into your world, and that that was a big big part of your self expression and and participating in things growing up. It sounds like in church and in school. Indeed, yeah. One of the great greatest experiences I ever had was uh, being in a couple of plays with my mother, because she was on uh, off Broadway plays, and and uh, to be able to do that in your own hometown with your mother is just a real great experience. Mm. And she was a great actress. She was really wonderful. Uh, yeah. The, the uh, uh, another really important theme I think for us in church community is the power of invitation. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Alice Watson, and in, in, when we were talking um, before today, you mentioned Fran Howe. Fran Howe was the first. Per I didn't know her, but she was she was the first person to ask me to do something at the church. She called me up. I answered the phone and all I heard was this, Fran Howe, First Church. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, and she wanted me to make something for the bazaar, yes, you know, yes. what can you bake? I'm like, I can bake bread. Well, all right. That's right. <laughs> I'm on. And, uh, you know, I think that that power of inviting people in, whether it's, it's something more serious and, um, oh, I've got two people waiting to get in here. Um, we're welcoming Bruce and, uh, and Diana, um, that that power of being invited in, whether it's it's something as as simple as uh, you know baking bread, or as um, here I'm trying to do two things at once, and I think I just muted you, Tony. So I'm going to you're going to have to unmute yourself, my friend. Um, Muting is a good thing sometimes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> At any rate, that, that power of that invitation in, whether it's something as serious as, as a potentially serious and engaging as a Bible study or something as simple as what, what are you gonna bake for the bazaar? It's really very important for you to, for all of us to look for people's gifts and interests, invite them in and um, help people to, to participate in the, in the community. That's right, and Martin, um, was, mm -hmm. Martin Copenhaver was very good at that. Um, yeah he would see um, a gift and help a person develop that gift and uh, somehow be able to match the gift with something 
within that person that would resonate spiritually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Fran Howe is certainly a, that kind of a person as well. Just mm -hmm. being able to, my older sister, Judy, was that kind of a person. Um, Judy was really important in your life. Yeah, she really was. She was. Tell us a little bit about her. What was she like? You're you're younger than she was by by some years. Shouldn't come as a surprise. I'm a I'm a middle child. My older sister Judy uh, is older than me by th three years, and uh, my younger sister is about uh, six years younger than I am. All uh, both of them and my mother were are light skinned redheads uh, with an Irish background and a temper to to show it. But Judy was one of these people that would just, uh, the minute she would see you, she would wrap her arms around you and swing you around just so joyously welcoming. And uh, she was my, my advocate. She was my uh, lifeboat. She, boat. she was just a person that showed me unconditional love and respect and taught me to have faith in myself, basically. And she just was... Um, a buffer between me and my parents, as I at the same time was trying to be a buffer between my mother and my father. So I kind of, be, you know, we each played different roles. But sadly, she died at the age of 55 uh, back in 1989 of, of tongue cancer, which was misdiagnosed. And then when they discovered it was what it was, it was too late and her lower jaw and, and you know, tongue were ex extracted, the whole thing. But it didn't get her down. She was, you know, I can still hear her saying, I love you. And when I went to her funeral by train to the Midwest where she lived, I met Louis Belson, the great drummer who was the husband of Pearl Bailey. I was in a private car. Opposite me was Pearl Bailey's manager. And in the morning, I heard this well, hello there, honey. And I said, my gosh, that's Pearl Bailey. And we had an hour and a half together. And when we got to Chicago, he went one way, which was what they were used to doing as a couple because he had his own gigs. She grabbed me by the arm and said, y'all come with me. And I carried her bags down to a waiting limousine. And she motioned me to, you know, peck her on the cheek. And off she went. And I said, well, that's, that's Judy. That's a gift from Judy. Judy knew I needed this and a gift just a wonderful gift. Mm -hmm. And two weeks uh, before, I had been to uh, a, uh, a kind of a prayer meeting for Judy. And then after this incident, I went to her funeral, where I learned that Judy, as she bled to death, was asking you know, for some music to be piped in, and they piped in the Hallelujah Chorus, which mm -hmm. happened to be Judy's favorite music. Mm -hmm. And that's what she died to. She died singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Mm -hmm. And I learned at the funeral that she said to the minister, why am I going through all of this? It seems so useless. And the minister said, because you're teaching people how to die as mm -hmm. you people how to live. She was a school teacher and she was very, very good at it. Very, very good. And I thought, boy, isn't that the truth? She just was an inspiration all the way around. And what a gift for you to have um, somebody like Judy in your family. Uh, you know, and she was really a shining star. And it's so tragic that you lost her early. Uh, but 
but what a wonderful thing that she was there for you um, when you you were growing up. And she just she just had that source of joy within her. She did. She did. And don't tell me that God doesn't give us gifts because she was one of them. <laughs> there are many in my life, but she was certainly the primary one. And yes, yeah. And I think of my Aunt Diantha, who is a, um, a, a minister's wife. My, my father's brother was a minister and she was a, a social worker. But the kind of person I learned so much from her as well as Martin Copenhaver about pastoral care, because it wasn't what she said necessarily, but that she was there. Mm -hmm. the, the gift of her presence of just being was a real uh, you know, message to me. Great person. I wanna take you to um, part of your, I think, was it part of your Harvard Divinity experience where you did the internship in uh, pastoral care? Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. And invite, <laughs> Tony put together some notes for today. And this is it's one of my favorite ones. Uh, pastoral care internship, Harvard Divinity, humility or humbling, something like that. So can you, can you share the story? Sure, yeah. Well, as part of the, uh, the, the protocol at Harvard, uh, you had to do uh, um, in-hospital service and I, mine was at Mass General Hospital and uh, we would visit patients. Uh, we would learn very little, if anything, about them before we went to see them, which is good because that's what happens when you actually do visit people. You know very little about them or their situation. Um, and one of the very first visits I had was with a person who was totally, totally unresponsive. And I really, uh, it was so, almost as if she was deaf, dumb and blind I, or had a stroke. I just didn't know quite which direction to go and how to be of any assistance to her. All I remember is, is um, leaving with a sense of mission not accomplished. And then I was told by my supervisors that indeed your mission wasn't accomplished. And what do you think's wrong with her? And why didn't you do thus and so? And when I learned that she had suffered with manic depression and was going through a, a severe episode, then I was able to go back in and be able to minister her, minister to her in a way that was meaningful to both of us. But it was extremely humbling. It, it gave you a sense of this is why I'm here, and I really have to rely on God to do this work through me because it's not. I'm not in control. I'm not the one that has the answers. So that was a good lesson. It was a good lesson. And, you know, I, I think of other people who, a woman, a lovely gal who was dying of, uh, of uh, uterine cancer and, you know, how we were able to pray together and to connect in ways that you do when this is serious business, folks, and you're not just giving them, uh, you know, some kind of uh, soothing cliche, you're really trying to uh, lighten the load a little bit. So that's what ministry in, in the pastoral care area is all about. And to me, what that, I don't know, I see God when, when I'm ministering to others. And to me, I never feel closer than I do to someone who's dying in the hospital. Um, I was there when several of our people in our church were dying. And, and that's when I 
I feel most most uh, connected. I think. Well, me, you've you've devoted a lot of your um, of your life, of your time in service, um, but uh, you know, many many hours and 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 days to uh, pastoral care, to hospital visiting, to visiting people's homes, calling people. You're part of our pastoral care team now. Um, and this, this was, it was part of professional training that you were doing at a certain point. Um, and I hear, I, you know, we all heard what you just said, that this is when you feel most connected to God yourself, when you're being in service and, and you know, that's really your place. Yeah. What, yeah. what are the ingredients? What, what makes uh, for good pastoral care from your perspective? Enthusiasm, uh, which of course means God in me, and, and I think um, a level of, of uh, compassion, mm -hmm. intuition, um, a real dollop of uh, learnedness. You have to be perceptive, I think. And that is the trick in, in a lot of this is that somehow, sometimes our perception is not the same as reality. Mm -hmm. You have to adjust very quickly. You have to learn how to uh, uh, handle that and then recover or to use it as leverage to a, a, a different, more helpful point, I think. And certainly prayer, prayer, prayer. Uh, you know, preparation is a good deal of this work. In, um, because you can get drained pretty easily. As you know, you, you, all of us here are service people. There's not, not a one of you I'm looking at today that isn't a service person. So you know, you can get burned out pretty easily, can't you? Mm -hmm. And what do you do when that happens? You have, to, you have to replenish yourself. And that to me is where scripture comes. That's where a friend, walking with a friend comes. Mm -hmm. Talking with your pastor helps. Um, walking in nature. That's why I like to hike, among other things. This is rejuvenating. It's just, a, you know, energizing and you're with, um, with God in uh, a different setting. Mm -hmm. So those are all the things that I find are really necessary to the work that we do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Tony. You you must have considered the ministry at some point, but you went in another direction professionally. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. um, you were in the area of finance insurance. Uh, you've been involved with our investments and trusts for a long time. You know a lot about, about money, how money works. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the connection with faith and money? Yeah, it seems like it's counterintuitive, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know- I'm not sure I think that. <laughs> That's that's good. I was just gonna I was just gonna validate that. Uh, I, you know, obviously Jesus spoke about money more frequently than any other topic. So there must have been some reason he did that, and I think it's because he understood how important a role this plays in our lives inevitably, and he knew that it could either master us, or we would, you know, be somehow. Uh, compromised if, if we uh, didn't understand that we needed to choose between God and mammon, if we, if we uh, somehow thought that uh, uh, money was the center part of our lives. So we're just trying to make sure when we look at money that 
we understand that there's a lot of emotions connected to money. And while that's important, it's also a heart issue. And it's most likely to be the reason why we walk toward God or walk away from God. And so in my decision not to go into the pastoral ministry, I was really making a decision to be a minister in a way that was not so much with the collar on and that could, could more realistically in the here and now, that's from my point, viewpoint, you know, 50 years ago, uh, deal in a, in a career that would enable me to do that. So financial planning to me is all about helping people who uh, need to use money wisely and need to see how their goals can be uh, gained and obtained through wise use of money, good stewardship. It was a real, uh, a real meaningful uh, profession for me to be in. I appreciate you addressing that. We don't, um, we don't, we talk about stewardship, but we yeah. don't talk about money and investing and that kind of thing that much. And um, you know, I, I see money as a, it's a tool, it's a, it's a vehicle and you can do, you can do really good things with it. And I, and you can also see what happens when there aren't enough resources and the stress that that puts on, on people. And um, it's just, it's a really interesting area that I think we could open up more for conversation. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, Tony. Um, the, I want, I want to just switch to a specific issue in the church, and that is the church looking at becoming open and affirming. And in our conversation, you lifted up Bob Lee, Susan Saunders. You know, could you talk about about that that point in your life and and your raising awareness? Yeah. Uh, well, Martin Copenhaver again comes immediately to my mind because he taught me so much. But one of them. Uh, was not directly, but indirectly, uh, while Cindy and I were staying overnight as a guest in their home in Wellesley, uh, I noticed a, a picture, a portrait, a poster on the wall that was about LGBT gay rights. And it was sort of the first time I ever really um, thought about that. And I thought, well, what a wonderful thing. If, if Martin thinks this is important, it's gotta be important. I need to look at this a little bit more carefully. Um, fast forward to Bob Lee, and uh, you know how Bob was with regard to this issue, very affirming, very welcoming, uh, urgently trying to have us uh, uh, you know, examine this issue. And I admit, and Donna knows, that I was a little bit reluctant for, for a lot of different reasons, but Along the way, as we discussed this, one of the things Sue Saunders said was, I just can't see standing in the way of somebody meeting God. And that just did it for me. That, that was the, the final reason I needed to move forward and say, you know, this is not only is it the right thing to do and valid thing, but it is the, the just thing to do. And also, I was thinking, how, we have um, those of us with, uh, with negative initial feelings were closing out people. And that to me was just not a, a way to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we've gained, forgive the phone, yeah, look at what we've 
gained by knowing people like Lois and Holly and and David and others. I mean, it, it, it's just All been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful, uh, fruitful endeavor. And I'm glad that uh, everybody is among us. It's wonderful. You know, I think um, there's a certain, um, in, in some families, some school systems, whatever, I, I, there was not very much conversation. And I, I think that you are not alone to coming to awareness later. Yeah. And I really, I, I, the reason I asked you to talk about that is I really enjoyed that part of our conversation because you were like, people influenced me by the art in their homes, by what they said was the right thing. And then when, when Susan said that, that that really raised your awareness and, and not exactly changed your heart, but made you realize what your real thoughts were about it. Yes. You've, you've had a lot of, this is no surprise to anyone who's heard your voice, you have a ton of radio experience, but for 20 years you had a Christian radio program. Yes, I uh, did. Music. And can you just, sure. just a synopsis of that experience? Yeah, well, it was, uh, if you recall, there was a gentleman by the name of Norman Nelson. He was our, uh, he was a, a minister of Christian education in our church during the George Lawrence days. And he had a radio program called The Word and the Music. And when he left, he said, Tony, I want you to take this over and continue on with it and do with it what you will. So I did that. And so for 20 years, I crept in, crooned and crept out again from WVMT radio with a 15 minute and then it became a half an hour radio program where, where I said a few words uh, of meditation and then spun a record, said a few words, uh, spun a record. And it uh, was, you know, the word and music of the Christian faith brought to you by the Greater Burlington Council of Churches and Synagogues. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, uh, weekly and our audience was uh, up into Montreal. So there were upwards to about a million people that would listen to this thing and I would get letters and responses and so forth. So I would have scripts uh, that I would write and, you know, talking about living with uncertainty or forgiveness or anger or doubt or uh, human life values. And I would play Evie Turnquist or Debbie Boone or B.J. Thomas or uh, Peter Paul Mary or George Beverly Shea or whatever would fit in. Amy Grant um, comes to mind. So a lot of contemporary music. And um, at the end of the 20 years, uh, WVMT had a change of ownership and they basically said, we don't have time for this anymore. And so that, that ended that. Well, you made time for it for 20 years and I, I'm sure you touched hearts. Um, you, you've, you've talked around next to the issue of doubts that you've had in your life and um, you, are there Bible passages, stories that you turn to in particular when you're in a, in a period of doubt or in a particularly challenging time in your life? Yeah, I think Romans 8, uh, again, a doubt is, it depends on what the doubt is. Is it doubt that God loves you or is it doubt that uh, you're going to have a job next week or is it doubt that uh, there's a place for you in heaven? So it depends on what you choose. But for me, um, scripture that addressed my issues would be Romans 8, where it says, you know, uh, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate you from the love of God. That speaks to me. Mm -hmm. The other one is Daniel 3, you know, where you're talking about uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And they're, you know, survival by fire. Uh, how, what, one of us hasn't been in a situation where you have said, I can't fight, I can't fight, I'm going to have to float. I am going to have to walk through and I hope I survive this fire. Mm -hmm. Or the other one might, might be, you know, John 14, everybody's familiar with that, you know, my father's house, I have many rooms, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you so. To me, that's very comforting and reassuring, particularly if you are no stranger to depression, where at moments you can feel as if there's no God there. And so this gives you a sense of uh, reassurance that no, you know, just because you didn't see my footprints on the sand doesn't mean that I wasn't there. And in fact, I was there, I was carrying you, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what's meaningful to me. And reading books like Martin's book on, you know, holding faith while having doubts, that's a wonderful book. And, and it gives, you, gives me solace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me understanding that, that it's good to have doubts. Doubts are normal. Uh, transactions. It's a way to uh, basically doubts are water that you pour on the seeds of faith, or as Beekner says, uh, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. I love that. <laughs> it, it keeps you awake and moving. Uh, it's a way to, you know, following the questions that doubt raises brings me into a different level of encounter with God. And so what I try and do when I'm feeling doubtful is to talk her to a friend and to uh, pray a lot, to follow those questions just like I do breadcrumbs to get to the bottom of what is the issue and can I shed any more light on it and then to transform that somehow into service. That's how I am. It's just, it's a really important uh, journey, a part of the journey, Tony, is to look at, look at doubt directly and to, to discuss it and, and, and share those stories. Um, this week in the Follow Me curriculum, where, where we were looking at the disciple Thomas, yes. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll raise my hand and say, I did not know that that man had this full life after that, that he was he was a real pillar of the church in India and part of what, what's now Turkey. And I, you know, I, I, I had no idea. I just knew that that one moment in his life, I didn't know the rest of the story. And by being there and expressing his doubt, that's a, it's a really important part of the church, right? It's embraced so yeah. that we can, we can talk about it and, and explore it together. Yeah, it's part of the human condition, and it's also, uh, it shows you that in spite of doubt, you can turn around and do so much to spread the gospel as, as Thomas did. He got a bum rap, really. We call him Thomas the Doubter, as if he was the only one that ever doubted, which is farthest from the truth, so... Um. Yeah. Oh, Tony, I'm going to pivot you again because we already talked about money. There's a topic we don't talk about much. I'm going to ask you to talk about marriage because I think your story about uh, becoming part of Marriage Encounter and then how that spun off for you, I think is I think it's important. Can you can you tell us about that? How did how did you happen to get involved with that? Sure. Well, our good next door neighbors um, are Catholic. 
And uh, they are the farmers from whom I bought our land to build our house when everybody said, you'll never get them to do anything. And they were just wonderful people. They became our family in essence. Their kids babysat our kids and our kids babysat their grandchildren and on it goes. So they came to us one day and said, we would like to invite you to become um, weekend members uh, of the Marriage Encounter community in Burlington and experience a, a weekend, as they called it, which is for couples with good marriages who want to learn how to communicate more effectively. And uh, so that's what we did. And that experienced, uh, I, I think it's one of the single most important experiences of my our life together, not only as a couple of 54 years, but also uh, in terms of an experience with the Holy Spirit. That's the first place I actually saw the Holy Spirit at work in the, the community in which we were engaged. The process was couples would come up and speak about their relationship on different subjects, you know, sex, death, uh, love, hate, uh, crime, abuse, family matters, uh, what the future is going to look like. And the stress was on how you feel about that, not what you think. So you learn things like there is, feelings are neither right nor wrong. They just are. God does not make junk. Uh, three and two are one. God, the Father with Cindy and me, three and two are one. Um, all of those things and the process of what we call dialogue, which works this way. We would pose a question, then each of us separately, say Cindy and I, would sit down and write our feelings about that question. Then we would dialogue together. We would exchange books, each read what the other wrote about that question. And then we would talk about those feelings so that in essence, you begin to feel like your spouse feels when something happens or about that particular subject. Fast forward again to a, a larger group of people, we would have at one time up to 30 couples who would do this together. That was a long night. We were part of the leadership and we would have meetings with lasted until two o'clock in the morning. Um, I must say that in the last 40 years, we have dialogue once a week with a particular couple uh, who, whom we love. And we go through that process, uh, each of us, one of us a week poses a question. We share that question among ourselves. Then we get together with the couple and we all share that together. And that's just been a wonderful growth experience. And it gets back to what I saw in that group to begin with, which was the Holy Spirit. It was as if we were writing a new chapter of the New Testament. That's the way we behaved. That's the way the group behaved, loving each other, supporting, uh, going through the normal joys and challenges of faith. Uh, just a wonderful way to live. There, there is much more to talk about, but I, I wanna open it up so people have a chance to ask you something, but I wanna ask you to just take maybe one or two minutes to talk. You're part of our visioning team. And the visioning team is uh, looking ahead to the next 10 years at church. You're about to invite everybody to participate in these cottage meetings coming up. Yeah. So I'm gonna ask you to just take a, just a personal 
window into that, what that means to you and how sure. you feel about this work. Well, personally, uh, it's it's one of the biggest undertakings I've been involved in, and I, I do like big undertakings, but I feel ever so um, humbled again by it. Um, I certainly need uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this well. I will do my best, I promise you that, and I do ask your prayers. To me, it is a wonderful opportunity with you, all of us together, to shape what we want the future of our church to look like. If you look at you know, other meetings we've had about the church, we're no longer that same church. And so what's different now is that um, we've had a decade of constant pastoral transition and we need a, a stabilizing, comprehensive vision for leadership for both our ordained people and our lay people. That's one of the, one of the senses of urgency for this new uh, revisiting uh, of, of this uh, planning process. The other one is the economic effects of the pandemic, which have really unfolded in ways that none of us expected, but it has uh, shown huge chasms in our, in our society and in our, in our uh, religious life. And then along with the sale of the Ronald McDonald House, which creates other issues, uh, it means that we've really got to have a solid understanding of our collective vision together. And so the important thing for us to do is to first of all, um, cottage meetings together so we can share ideas and be able to express what is on our mind and to be able to shape who it is we want to be and how we envision we will be moving forward in the next decade. That's a lot of, that's a big mouthful of work to, to talk about and a lot of material to think about. But the best way to do that is to start with cottage meetings, just like we're doing here. It, the, the meetings that we're doing right here is exactly what we are envision doing. So it's really important too. I think we'll have it done. Yeah, and everybody will be receiving invitations to participate in that. And yeah. um, because it gets started soon, that will be on Zoom. So let, let me invite people to, Tony, thank you so much. Um, and I haven't even told people that you're a ventriloquist yet. I mean, we didn't even get to that. <laughs> I want to invite people to have, might have a comment or a question. If you could just put up your hand and a I'll call on you. I'd love to have some other voices. Donna Lee. Oh, yeah, Tony. Um, I've always been fascinated uh, by your theological perspective in any of the groups that I've been in with you uh, and your knowledge. I, I'm curious, how far along did you go in seminary? A year. Okay. Yeah, Rockefeller Foundation scholarship for a year. This was after I had been in radio in North Adams, Massachusetts, and uh, that... Uh, that opportunity presented itself, and so I took it. Okay, thank yep. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Anybody else have a question? Lois. Hi, Lois. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Tony. There's, since you deal with finances and faith, I wonder if you could share with us your feelings on tithing. I recommend it highly. Um, since the day we joined the church, that's been my goal, is to tithe. Uh, much to Cindy's 
early consternation because we have nothing, not even two nickels to put together. And so every time I would come up and say, I think we ought to bump that up by X number, amount of money. She said, well, wait, oh, what about this? What about the mortgage? What about that? But she, she was on board, but she was being a prudent person as well. So uh, is uh, every year we've been in church, we've been able to increase our tithe, increase our, the amount that we give. And I can say now that we give, you know, if, you, if you're literally saying tithing is 10%, we let her literally do that. And we tithe 10% of our net income. And that does not include what we give to other organizations. Um, that is not a standard that everybody, uh, I'm not saying, you know, what's good for us is good for you. That's not a standard that I expect people to meet, but that is the one that we meet. And I'm very pleased to get to that, that part. Well, we're talking about money on spirit seekers, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we're crossing thresholds here <laughs> there's, there's silence when you finish Tony Patty Thomas yes want? so I want to know about the drumming how did you choose that particular yeah. instrument Very or, or, or do you play others also I started out at the age of four banging a small oh. drum and pots and pans Oh, my goodness. <laughs> at the age of 12, I began piano lessons. And then my father, who was a trumpet player, put a trumpet in my hand and I took trumpet lessons. But I really couldn't shake the rhythm part of it. I just found myself drawn to uh, not only the kinesthetics that a stick in your hand and a hi-hat and a bass drum and cymbals uh, presents to you, but the rhythm part, the different voc vocal um, expressions that you can get out of a drum. But I thank the Lord for the background of piano and trumpet because that gives you a good foundation in music theory. And I'm not an expert in that by any means, but it, it gives you a good appreciation for, for music theory and how it's all put together. Yeah, thank you. And the other thing I was going to comment on is that when uh, Cindy first broke her leg and you two were sitting on the couch, I could see these certificates up above your head and it looked like a gavel. I, I, what have you earned that would look like a gavel or maybe that's Cindy's? I don't know. <laughs> uh, in, in the financial planning uh, industry, there is uh, there are many associations and institutes of financial planning and so forth. And so those gavels are about my chairmanship of each one of those organizations from time to time, or an award that was given to me for you know service to the community and to the industry, that kind of thing. And my diplomas were there. Right, because when you first started talking about divinity school, I said, that doesn't match the gavel I saw above <laughs> the couch. <laughs> so believe this or else. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> uh, any investments there. <laughs> uh, good questioning, Patty. Any does anybody else have a comment? Well, it's more of a hammer than it is a gavel. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Don. <laughs> yes, I just want to mention one thing that um, 
Well, when Lori and I, uh, we came to Vermont, the first people that at the church we met, of course, was yourself, Lucy, and Carrie Bale, and mm -hmm. Sally. But then when we got actually to the uh, church sermons, and then we wouldn't go for the coffee hours after in the chapel, Tony was basically very welcoming. And that was the very first smiling face that I recognized among the church members. And I just, you know, it was like a magnet. I just walked to, to Tony and I started talking to him. And, and as I told her, I said, wow, what a wonderful person he is. I want to get to know him better. <laughs> that is his hospitality and his smile and the way he welcomes people and treats people just it was so significant the in the beginning. I just want to thank you, Tony, for that. Uh, and and did, did he say, I'll pray for you? <laughs> <laughs> he always prays for everyone. <laughs> I was, the feeling is mutual. I was very attracted to you. I knew you had a very interesting story to tell. Indeed you do. And uh, just, uh, you know, you exude uh, the spiritual faith as well, so. Right back at you, buddy. Thank you. I'm yeah. learning. I'm learning from Guru. <laughs> and Bruce, you unmuted yourself. Did you want to say something? I just wanted to say, Lucy, this program just gets better and better every week. And Tony, <laughs> you were fantastic. Oh, thank you, my friend. You're, yes. You're an inspiration to me, Bruce. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, I will. Um, Carol Tandy. Yeah, Tony, <clears throat> excuse me, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate your modeling such intense but gentle Christian behavior and way of wanting to lead people and help people, <clears throat> excuse me, and engage with people. You always really make personality to personality contact. It's not just words. I Thank appreciate you. that. Thank you so much. Thank you. It means a lot to me. There are other folks who, who are, have already told me. I'm going to listen to that podcast. I can't be there. I have to be at work. I love Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it's a direct quote from my Facebook Messenger today. Oh. Uh, just I can't. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and the thoughtfulness to do this. And everybody will just have to wait uh, to learn more about your um, personal history as a ventriloquist. <laughs> being from the era of Ed Sullivan, <laughs> I'm quite interested in uh, in seeing you, um, you know, capture that for us at some point. But I think it's post COVID. I think it's an in person thing. <laughs> oh, maybe at maybe at the moth, he could do a little number. Yeah. Well, you're very very welcome. And if you can say neuronal microscopic silicaconiconiosis, you're you're. <laughs> Okay, for our <laughs> listeners on the podcast, Tony did that without moving his mouth. <laughs> for a smile. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank, thank you all so much. I'm going to tell you that we have a guest scheduled for next week. Doris Ogden is going to be our spirit seeker. And um, now some of you in the choir may know Doris well, but Doris has, as you know, a fabulous singing voice. But she also has a very interesting career at the University of Vermont, and I'm really looking forward to, and, and, and of course, her faith journey, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. 
that's uh, next Friday the 19th and on the 26th, Doug Beeman will be our, our special guest. And as, as you know, Doug is, has been involved with the church in, in many different ways as well. Mm. So I'm really excited about folks who are stepping up. If um, I'm always interested in, in who is interested in, in participating in this way. So I'm going to close with a quote from uh, William Sloan Coffin. Mm. And I hope that this resonates as, as, you know, something that will be meaningful to you, Tony. So here's what William Sloan Coffin has to say to you, Tony Hall. <laughs> there is nothing anti-intellectual in the leap of faith, for faith is not believing without proof, but trusting without reservation. Faith is no substitute for thinking. On the contrary, it is what makes good thinking possible. It has what we might call a limbering effect on the mind. By taking us beyond familiar ground, faith ends up giving us that much more to think about. Certainly Peter and Andrew and James and John, in deciding to follow Jesus, received more to think about than they would have if they had stayed at home. And so it is with all of us. If we give our lives to Christ, if we leave familiar territory and take that leap of faith, what we receive in return fills our minds altogether as much as it fills our hearts. I am praising God today, Tony, that that, that innate sense of faith was part of you from when you were a young boy and brought you to be part of all of our lives. So thank you very much. And thank you for being our guest today. You're more than welcome. God bless all of you. Bye friends. Best to Cindy. <laughs> yes, and our best to Cindy. I'll pass it along. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.